Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we have Felice Pace. He is coordinator for the Grazing Reform Project, and that's pretty much what it sounds like. We're dealing with cows on public lands. Is that correct? That's correct. So what's wrong with cows on public lands? <laughs> uh, well, they don't, they don't belong there. They're not natural to the, the environments. But um, more, more to the point, they have uh, impacts that are largely not recognized, particularly in the West, on our water supply, on our water quantity, and our water quality. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, particularly the national forest lands where we do our monitoring, we focus on the national forest lands. But the national forest lands, uh, as opposed to the BLM, Bureau of Land Management lands, are, tend to be at the top of the watersheds, occupying the headwaters. And usually in those headwaters, we have wetlands, we have meadow systems that are wetlands. And these, as described by environmentalists back in the turn of the century, the, the 1800s, 1890s, uh, were described as the sponge. This is why they, they, um, they preserved the Adirondacks back in New York State to protect the water supply. And they recognized it back then, but in the West, we haven't really recognized how important our uplands are uh, to our water supply because we've been able to rely on snowpack. Well, the snowpacks are going away, and now we have to get serious about how we manage our upland, and those are occupied by forests and meadows, uh, particularly in the headwaters, these meadow systems that are largely wetlands. And that's the sponge that that's, those are really our biggest reservoirs and we need to take care of them if we wanna have a water supply in the summertime. Makes a lot of sense to me. Living out here in Colorado these days, water is definitely sparse and across the Southwest. I lived in Oregon. It wasn't as much of an issue on the Western side, but certainly on the Eastern side, you're in California though. So that's a- I'm in, I'm in Northern California, just South of the border. Okay. And uh, so I know the I do monitor Oregon National Forest grazing allotments in southern Oregon. And uh, and even in Oregon, in western Oregon, we're seeing much more of our precipitation come as rain as opposed to snow. So uh, even in Oregon and Washington state on the west side, we're going to have to adjust. Yeah, I believe it. That's for sure. Yeah, we're getting a weird dry winter here in Colorado. The highest elevations for getting some decent snow, but I'm at 7,500 feet and we barely had dustings the whole winter. It's, uh, yeah, it's a bummer, particularly because the Colorado River feeds all these other states and you know, all the way down to Mexico. So that all adds up. So when we're talking about water quality impacts of cows, so we're talking about erosion and then shit, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, and and the removal of shade leading to the warming up of these of these watersheds. Um, you know, there have been some studies, a couple of studies that have found that cows, cattle, spend uh, up to fifty percent of, uh, or even more, a greater percent of their time in the riparian areas and the wetlands. Uh, horses, wild horses, on the other on the other uh, hand, are wide ranging. And they only spend maybe 20%, 10% of their time in riparian areas. 
so they've done this by studying what's in the, the poop, you know, what the, what the cows ate, and they eat a lot of wetland plants. And uh, in California here on the National Forest, we have these long-term uh, transects uh, in, in the meadow systems that are grazed. And they show that over time, we're losing our wetland plants. That means, you know, the trampling is lowering the water table uh, and drying out the wetlands that are at the top of our water system. And that's not very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I spent a little bit of time in Northern California National Forest. So I went on a backpacking trip across the Marble Mountain wilderness, maybe 10 years ago. My backyard. Ago. Okay. Yeah. It's, it was a, that was a rugged, rugged hike up there. The trail was barely even in existence, the part we went through. So I'm not, what is the national forest that's, that's a larger, that it's a part of? What is that? Klamath National Forest. Right. Klamath. So I started on my hike there and uh, the, within the first several miles, there was this open grassy meadow with streams meandering through and it was close cropped grass. And I realized this is this has been cow bitten here. You know, in some ways it looks really pretty and pastoral, but then you take a closer look, you're like, wait a second, the grass isn't supposed to be this short here in the summer. And then you could see around the edges of the stream bed, it was messed up because of the heavy cow hooves pushing into it. And then even in the wilderness, I didn't think that that was a thing, but we were in the middle of the wilderness and there were these areas that were basically almost looked like little deserts up there that had been overgrazed. Somehow there, there are cows up in the wilderness. And that was a bit of a shock to me. And the middle of the wild, there were these basically, I remember it being just dusty little hillocks because all the vegetation had been removed. Yeah. And, and that's in the drier parts of the meadows, you know, our, our native vegetation, uh, uh, is dominated by bunch grasses, and those evolved with elk and antelope that are wide ranging. You know, up there in that wilderness that you were talking about, I've been there before the cows in some of those meadows where the elk had come through, and it was like a lawnmower had gone through, and there was four inches of grass. You know, they left four inches of grass, but then they're gone. When the cows get there, then they stay there until everything's gone. Yes. So what has happened in in the drier meadows? that are dominated by these native bunch grasses, they are very susceptible to repeat grazing in the same season. And these cows will hit them two or three times in the same season. Well, that, that basically wipes, that, wipes them out over time. So the drier portions of our meadows have been devegetated. There's a lot of bare soil and that concentrates the grazing even more in the riparian areas. And uh, so you have bank trampling we mentioned, uh, you have one of the things we didn't really talk about very much is the removal of shade. They, especially in the fall, the willows in particular become very palatable to the, the cows and they eat them a lot. And that over time removes a lot of shade, raises the stream temperature. And then in this area, the Klamath National Forest that we were talking about, that water, those headwaters go down into streams that become salmon streams. Right. Uh, salmon are cold water fish like trout and uh, they are, you know, steelhead are there too. They're a, they're a rainbow trout. And those that uh, raised temperature is very much a problem for the, the salmon and the steelhead and the other fish. That's important to know these 
hidden upstream impacts that we might not take into account. So how are cows hurting salmon? That doesn't make sense. They're not stepping on the fish, but they basically they're <laughs> in a manner of speaking, they are, they're, they're, they're killing the fish yeah. just in an indirect and, way. And by the way, we actually have some grazing allotments on the national forest uh, that, that are in uh, salmon habitat. They go low down to the rivers and uh, not all of them, most of them are in the wilderness at the high elevation, but there are ones that come down right to the, right to the main river, the Klamath River, and those impact uh, critical habitat for coho salmon. It's listed under the Endangered Species Act. Okay, yeah, you can always tell when there are cows around a, <coughs> any sort of watershed because the banks are always all slumped in because they're going down into the water and they're, they're heavy. I mean, how much do they weigh? They weigh a thousand pounds, thousand pounds, 1200 pounds. They're big animals. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a bit upsetting and alarming. I've seen a lot of damage and I know you don't focus as much on the BLM land stuff, but in Utah, see, we're going out into these fragile ecosystems, the cryptobiotic soil. So you go to the national parks and all the stuff and even the BLM lands and they have all these signs. Don't you dare step on any of that stuff. I'm like, okay, okay. I'll be very careful. Cause it, you know, the biotic soil. And I saw like, I'm hopping from rock to rock and I'm being real cautious on that. And then there's these like thousands of cows that weigh thousand pounds punching into all this stuff. I'm like, it's not an excuse for me to be able to do that too, but it's like, it's this exercise in futility. It's like a joke that they have these things yeah. ranging around. And the problem, of course, in the Utah is there's hardly any water. So anytime there are these little tiny little stream beds, that's where the cows, they uh, say coagulate almost like they're these scabs. But yeah, they, they all collect there. And in the, what you, the national monuments, they're allowed to run rampant. And I was looking into stuff. So the Bears Ears National Monument there in Utah mm -hmm. it was something that over the Trump administration had removed national monument status. And I took a trip down there and I saw all this cow damage anyway. And so I actually wanted to write an article about, we shouldn't be opening this area to mining and drilling, that's for sure. But it's not really even protected as is. No publications were even interested in that. They, they want to just focus on the, the, you know, the big bad Trump, which yeah, he's doing terrible things. But let's not forget that the the cows have been destroying these areas for decades under uh, <laughs> under Democratic leadership as well, and sort of with the endorsement of a lot of environmental groups. So since we're in that controversial territory, we would assume that uh, environmental groups uh, who are concerned about forests, concerned about drinking water, water quality, salmon, they would be right on top of the issue of public lands grazing. So are they? Well, it, it, it varies, you know, by group. Uh, the Sierra Club, I'm, I'm a local Sierra Club official too, and I'm on their national policy committee. And the Sierra Club, uh, we have a, a very strong grazing, uh, grazing committee made up of volunteers all over the West. Um, but we also have staff that works on those issues. So, you know, the, the reason why you don't see much uh, national uh, group attention is because uh, the Democrats and the Republicans support public land grazing. We don't have, the emphasis has been on getting rid of grazing, um, ending grazing, because right now national parks is the only public lands where it's not happening. Happening on state lands, happening on federal lands, the BLM, as you mentioned, the Forest Service, 
Um, so it doesn't matter if it's wilderness, if it's a national monument, you know, they almost, almost all of these places have, have grazing allotments and some cows uh, in them. Um, and so, you know, uh, there's such support for it. That's one of the reasons I started this project uh, about 11 years ago is because recognizing we just don't have the political power to get rid of grazing in our, on our public lands right now. We don't have it. Uh, even our, our best environmental champions, my congressman, uh, Jared Huffman, who's got a wilderness bill out there right now, he's a great champion, but he, he's not gonna take on grazing. In fact, he supports, uh, uh, you know, grazing some places. He's got constituents, you know, that are uh, in the livestock industry. So recognizing that, um, we started a reform project because uh, if the cows are going to be there up in up on our public lands, the least they can do is manage them properly. And that and they're not managed properly. In the vast majority of these uh, public land grazing allotments, it's been referred to as Christopher Columbus grazing. They lose the cattle into the mountains in the summertime and, and rediscover them in the fall. In other words, they're just put up there and they're left alone. And because of the way that species, uh, the cat cattle evolved, they find the place they like the best and that's where they stay until they're moved or until everything's gone uh, that, that is good to eat, that they like to eat, and then they'll move to another area. So these areas get trashed, these concentration areas get trashed. And, um, and, and so we decided, okay, let's try to get them to, to actually manage these cows in the wilderness. Because the research, even from the extension scientists that are in the land grant colleges that serve the agricultural industry and they're big supporters of grazing, places like UC Rangelands that's at UC Davis, uh, you can look that up online, UC Rangelands uh, website. And they have, they've looked at studies all over the world. And, and you know, they confirm that, um, yes, no grazing is preferable to grazing in terms of soil carbon and measures like that and riparian protection. But uh, if uh, uncontrolled grazing, unmanaged grazing is much worse for your riparian areas and your wetlands than if they rotate the grazing among the different pastures on an allotment. Um, and then, you know, if we require these, um, these guys, and there's some uh, women who are manage these things as well. I know some of these people, I've lived in community with them and, and I meet them out in the field actually when I'm monitoring and they might be putting in their cows or taking them out or whatever. Um, so I know these people and if they have to actually manage their cows when they're up in the wilderness, uh, range riders aren't cheap, uh, time is money and um, some of them at least are going to give up these grazing allotments and if they are going to accept actually managing their cows in the wilderness, then the impacts are going to be quite a bit smaller, particularly the water quality impacts. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and it's similar to forest practice laws in say Oregon, which I'm most familiar with say on public lands, where if they were actually enforced and implemented, it would be a huge improvement, but they're not. And if they were, it would be quite the hit to industry, which is why they're not. So yeah, it seems, it seems pretty basic, 
but it's like sort of like COVID regulations. They're kind of in name only, and they just uh, hope people voluntarily just do the right thing, which we've seen in our country does not happen very often. So, so, so you, are you hopeful that over time there is going to be more uh, attention and scrutiny paid to this? Uh, what, what sort of progress have you seen? Is it kind of at a standstill? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not optimistic that the agencies are all of a sudden, because we have a Biden administration, are all of a sudden going to start managing the public lands better. You know, I've seen, I mean, I'm 74 years old, and I was a forest activist during the ancient forest uh, stuff, the spotted owl and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I um, did a lot of appeals, timber sale appeals and litigation and all that kind of stuff. And the agencies are not going to do the right thing on their own. Um, they consider these, uh, these uh, cattle people as their, uh, and some sheep people too, as their clients, you know, they're the people they serve. Um, so we're not going to see that. Uh, we're not going to see uh, reforms coming from inside. What does give me a little bit of hope is that in the environmental community now and Western Watersheds Project uh, has um, led the way in this, uh, we've gotten organized into coalitions and uh, we have a national coalition working on grazing now. And we've, we've, we are raising the profile of grazing with uh, the new people coming into the administration and into these agencies. So that gives me some hope. Um, uh, we're going to have to keep the pressure on, but we are getting, and, and in that national coalition, we have groups like NRDC and Defenders of Wildlife are participating in that. Um, so, you know, that gives me, gives me some hope that we're actually going to work more on the project. We're going to put more pressure on, and, and that's the system responds to pressure. So we, where, uh, where we have put the pressure on locally, we go out and we document the problems on an allotment. And then we use the water quality regulators that are state regulators and the Forest Service. And we tell them this is the problems that these are the problems that are out there right now. You know, go go fix them. And water quality regulators get these get these Forest Service people to manage this better. So where we put the attention on the individual allotments, we get some changes. But it's like pulling teeth. It's really hard to get uh, regulators clean water. You know, we have the Clean Water Act. It's been around what over thirty years now, um, or is it more? Uh, maybe fifty years. Yeah. Fifty years, right? Yeah, we just passed our 50th anniversary and, you know, we don't have clean water. Most of our uh, estuaries are uh, are polluted uh, and it's mostly nutrients from animal agriculture. And that's the dairies and, you know, the cattle operations down low. But it's also uh, in some of these what should be our highest quality waters coming out of our wilderness areas are degraded already when they get out where we have the cattle. Yeah, that's a so the deal. Clean Water Act that needs to be used a lot more and applied a lot more to those those lands and and that activity. So we have the legislation in place. It's just like once again, it's not being enforced. And and I'm shocked to hear you tell me that Biden is not going to be our environmental savior. Are you <laughs> that's the first time uh, that, and uh, I'll have to figure out how to go on living. But uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, you've been around for a while and you have seen it go back and forth from Democrat to Republican, Democrat, Republican. And my guess, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Democrats often will do some slightly better stuff and give lip service to a lot of things. And for sure, a lot of the, you know, Trump obviously was doing terrible things, but my take is like, at least under Trump, we're on our guard and we're like, bad guy, we're going to fight it. And then when a Democrat comes in, it's kind of like, look the other way. Are you afraid that that's going to happen? Or do you think maybe there's going to be some positive change maybe under Biden? Well, I, you know, the Democrats, uh, the Democrats have done have done better over time. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I worked on the ancient forest issue. I mentioned the northern spotted owl. We got the northwest forest plan. We cut logging uh, in Northern California all the way up to the Canada border on the west side. We cut logging by about 80 percent of the public land logging. So, you know, that Clinton administration did that, but it did that because we put the pressure on them. So Mm. the Democrats will do better, but they won't do better if you leave them alone. You got to keep the pressure on. Now, I think everybody that works in this field now uh, in the field of public lands, you know, from the environmental perspective, we all know this. I mean, maybe, you know, some of the interns coming in, we got to tell them about it and show them how it works. But everybody else knows that it's it's not going to be, you know, uh, paradise and we can't just retire now. Uh, you know, I'm going to keep doing it, even though I'm 74 years old and it, it keeps me out there in the wilderness as well. Well, it's so great that you are still doing it. And uh yeah, so many of us have been so appreciative of what you've been doing. I've been aware of your work for quite some time, and I, I think it's really super important. There are a lot of folks who argue that the West is just a dumb place to be growing cows, right? It's so dry already. It's like, and and my understanding is, I don't have numbers for this, but most of the probably beef and dairy cattle are grown on the Eastern side of the U.S. anyway. So we're not really dependent as a nation on Western grazing on public lands, are we? No, we're not. It's it's 1%, maybe 2% at the most. The last time I think it was calculated, it was 2% uh, of our beef production as some, some amount of time on public land. The thing that's uh, difficult from the social perspective is that um, these ranches, some of these ranches in our rural, in the rural West are very dependent on those lands. And if they're not, when they put the cattle up into the mountains during the summertime, they grow hay on, on their own land and then feed that hay to the cattle during the winter. Um, so, you know, if we ended public land grazing, um, it would have an impact on rural economies, on, on Western rural economies, because that's, that's a significant uh, percentage, a, a significant part of these rural economies. And, uh, you know, people would still, some of those ranches would survive, and they have survived when they've given up. Uh, there's a lot of vacant public land allotments out there that don't have anybody grazing them because nobody wants to graze them. And once upon a time, they were grazed. So a lot of that has been given up voluntarily. And, uh, you know, those some of those ranches, most of them maybe will still be viable, but they, you know, their production would go down significantly. Uh, And so their income would go down. Well, a lot of folks call that welfare ranching, and maybe it's not very kind term because these are human beings. And 
they deserve to be able to make a living somehow. And they've been in these areas for a long time. And I do know, even though maybe I disagree with them politically on a lot of things, they do love the land in a different way, perhaps, but they, they're a part of it. And I know they get annoyed when they have big city people coming in and telling them how they should live it. And they're actually out there living it. So I do have some sympathy for it. Uh, at the same time, I know a lot of these folks are, will, not all of them, but will rail against the concept of public lands and public assistance. Meanwhile, they're capitalizing on it. Maybe the answer, I don't think the answer is like too bad, now just starve. I think a bailout would be reasonable, a way to, because, because I don't think the answer is, well, you guys get to do this forever because it has impacts. It has large impacts. And that's just not how we can live in a country, but we can't just toss them out on their asses. Like the idea of like, let's, let's stop all logging forever. Like, I don't know who's really advocating for that, but I don't think that that's, that's a reasonable thing. I don't think public lands logging should happen, but I think that loggers should be able to work and the, the companies should be reformed in a way. Do you know if there's much talk about anything like that? Is that unlikely? Well, reform, yeah. I, this national coalition that I was talking about, that's that's a big part of it. Um, you know, we, uh, we're going to try to get the, the Biden administration to do better management of these lands. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of room for better management out there short of ending the grazing. And eventually, I mean, you know, uh, what has happened in some areas is there have been buyouts. So we can have voluntary programs. In fact, this is what we're pushing for legislation is voluntary buyout programs, not using public funds, but using private funds. Mm -hmm. We got plenty of uh, rich folks and foundations that want to fund uh, buying out these public land grazing people. So that's a business decision for them. Uh, and a lot of them, I can tell you because I've, I've lived, uh, I don't now, now I live down on the Yurok Reservation near the mouth of the Klamath, but I used to live up in the Scott River Valley, one of the main tributaries, and many of the public land grazers are there. I've known them for 40 years. And uh, if they, you know, some of them can't get the kids to come back. Right. And, and take over. The kids don't want to come back. They went away to school and they're living in, in the cities or in the suburbs. And, uh, you know, some of them have come back, but some of these guys, they're, they're eager for a buyout uh, because they're getting very old and they can't, they can't do it anymore, particularly when we ask them and get the Forest Service to ask them to actually manage their cows up there. Uh, they can hardly get up in the mountains anymore. That's a great point. So yeah. voluntary buyouts, that's what we want to really, that's what we are really pushing uh, to put into federal legislation when we have wilderness bills so that it's totally voluntary. Nobody's sure. going to be forced to give up their allotment, but if somebody is willing to, we'll buy them out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that's a positive thing in terms of the trend is that there is a lot less of the culture for that. And I know it's a, a romantic thing and a lot of people want to live out in the land and stuff like that. But yeah, the younger folks that go to the cities, you know, if you're a young guy, that's where you're going to meet your wife, probably not out on the, the range. So that's the reality of the situation. You're saying this is actually a benefit to these folks who they don't have anyone who wants to inherit it. This gives them a nice little nest egg for their retirement, potentially. Right. Cool. Well, that's right. a great thing. And of course, the issue 
I mean, in terms of this getting more on the public radar, which it seems like it is to a certain degree, but there are so many tie-ins to environmental issues. I mean, you already talked about the water issue, the, the land issue, salmon. There's the climate argument. So cattle are a major driving force of climate change with all the, the methane they produce. Animal rights issues, although I haven't seen a lot of animal rights folks that really get involved with the the land issues. I find it's like either or. There's there's not as much of that intersection, which there are potentially reasons for that. And then also pandemic stuff, right? So we don't know for a fact how COVID started. There, we, we don't we want might not know for sure for a while or maybe never. But they think, for instance, the H1N1, which they were calling the swine flu, might have been tied into pig farming. So the reality is these collections of uh, all these herds and stuff like that, maybe less out there uh, on the range and stuff like that, but certainly growing cows is a potential breeding ground for contagion and pandemics. And I mean, that's where most diseases for humans have come from has been in close proximity to animals. And that's why a lot of the diseases were so devastating where they came over from Europe, brought over from Europe to Native Americans. Native Americans didn't have the resistance because they weren't living with pigs, basically, the way that, that Europeans were. So there are so many reasons for people to care about these issues. And that's why it's such an important topic. Well, drinking water supplies, too. You know, the uh, uh, one of the local tribes here, federal tribes, the Quartz Valley Indian Reservation, uh, over a decade ago, in fact, they were one of the inspirations for me because I know the people there uh, going way back. Um, but they started doing water quality testing. They got an environmental justice grant from the EPA and they started doing water quality testing, including upstream from their reservation in the wilderness, in the Marble Mountain wilderness that you were talking about. And they found that there's fecal coliform uh, pollution in violation of standards wow. in this, this water coming out of the wilderness into their reservation. So, and it gets into the groundwater too. So we do have um, health risks that are associated. There's one in the Russian wilderness, a small wilderness area in Northern California. Um, there's a lake uh, called Taylor Lake that's only a, a half a mile in from the trailhead. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of towns, the town of Etna and the Scott River Valley with a couple of different towns is down below. And the kids and the families, they regularly go to this lake in the summertime. Even you could do it as a day trip. And I have with my family many times, the kids go swimming, you know, they can go fishing if they want to, but mainly it's swimming and, and so forth and so on. Well, the cattle get in there and, and they really muck up the place. And they, I, I've got pictures showing cow poop right in the water. And here we have families rec recreating, kids recreating on a regular basis. It's, it's just crazy. So there are uh, health risks that are associated with this to recreators and to the water supply down below. I think that's really important. And maybe with people paying a little more attention to public health these days, that can get more resonance. I wanted to talk a little bit about some wild horse stuff because I, I don't know if you're sure. an expert on that, but you probably know a bit on I'm it. becoming an expert because uh, uh, we have to be these days. 
No, but I've I've been working with the wild horse people for a while, and I've I'm actually going to go out this spring to we have one of these uh, Forest Service wild horse territories out in uh, Alturas, out on the Modoc National Forest in Northeast California. I'm going to be going out there and uh, and and monitoring that place. So cool. yeah, we can talk about horses. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's go a little into that. So here, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my understanding of the issue. So it seems as if back in the megafauna times up until maybe 30,000 years ago, there were horses in North America. So they evolved with the landscape. Now they, it it appears that they probably went extinct. There's arguments that some of the genetics are still around, but it's irrelevant. They mostly went away and then Europeans kind of brought them back. And now some of them had been let loose on the land over time and they basically become feral and sort of readapted to the landscape. Now, there are some people who have, well, the question is whether the concerns are legitimate. So going back to elk, so you talked about before, so cows grazing, they stick in one area, they chew everything up, sheep chew everything to the roots almost. Elk, I live with elk herds all around my place here. And uh, I'm basically in a residential meadow forest area. And even though there are elk herds all over the place, they're not denuding the landscape. Um, and, I, and I see them all over the place. So yeah, like you said, they move around. Sure. So it seems as if that the horses, obviously they're going to eat some, some vegetation. They're obviously going to have some, um, you know, punching into the soil. Their, their impact is minuscule compared to the cattle, yet a lot of the cattle ranchers want to get rid of the wild horses, maybe as a scapegoat for what's going on with the, the ranchers, or maybe just like, because ranchers are, are doing this amount of damage with their cattle. And then maybe there's a little bit of impact with the wild horses. And then they'll be like, see what the wild horses are doing to give them more breathing room. So is, is that an accurate summation of the issue? Well, well, the, the uh, almost because the okay. ranchers, they want the grass. They okay. want the grass for their cattle that those horses are are eating. I see. Now, uh, I've I've read those studies about horses might have uh, survived in some isolated locations and so forth and so on. Well, uh, the main paper on that, the papers that he refers to, don't really say what he says they say. Okay. So I really don't see it, but it's irrelevant it because what happened. It's important to know how these horses that are there today got on these public lands. These are public lands that the ranchers use. They just like they put out their cows in the in the summertime. They used to put out their horses onto the public land. And and you know this goes goes way back. So they put out their horses. They needed their horses to manage the the cattle to do their work. So they put their horse herds out there as well. Well then then came the great depression and um and they forgot about their horse they decided well we're not we can't afford to keep our horses they're just going to die if we bring them in because we don't have the stuff to feed them we can't afford to feed them so we'll just forget about them and leave them out there well those are the wild horses that are out there today that started started in the 40s and most of them the vast majority of them are in nevada and and the Nevada soils, the biological soil crusts you were talking about, did not evolve with large large animals. And elk, you know, in those drier lands, elk, as you know, elk are uh, you know 
in the foothills and up into the mountains, um, they're not in the desert. They're not a desert animal. And antelope uh, are there, but there's not that many of them and they're wide ranging. So, you know, uh, really the kind of damage we're seeing out there today is not the damage we saw before. But we have federal law that has established these territories for horses. And the problem is that you'll have horses there, but you also have cattle there. And, and, And the BLM and the Forest Service is assigning most of the forage to the to the cattle, and then they want to remove horses because there's not enough forage for them. So the position of most of us that are working on grazing issues in the environmental community is get the cows off first. They're right. doing more damage. Um, they, these are territories, and we're talking about within the territories that are designated for horses. There should not be livestock grazing. Okay. All of the forage there should be. They they need to be managed, but they can be uh, managed if all the forage is allocated to the horses. And that's the way it should be. Congress designated these areas for horses. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that clears up some things. So it's not as much about the erosion. It's just the food source, the the grass source for, uh, for feeding. So there's been a lot of in terms of impacts, you know, in terms of impacts, just on a, on a grand scale, Yeah, there's orders of magnitude, more cattle out there. Yeah. So the amount of damage, yeah, they're big. They're both big animals, comparable weights. They can do this, the same amount of damage. But with the cattle, there's 10 to 100 times more cattle out there in the West on the right. public lands than there are horses. And number two, the horses are wide ranging, as we said, yeah. whereas the cattle like to hang out in the riparian areas and the wetlands. Yeah, yeah it's like apples and oranges. And yet the BLM has been off of BLM lands, they've been rounding up wild horses for years. And that's been a really controversial issue. I was following that a bit more when I was in Oregon. So they go out there, they, they lasso them or whatever they do. And then they, they auction them off to people. And, you know, that that's, it seems like a lot of them go to at least they're not mistreated per se, but then it does appeal, appear as if some of them had been killed. Now I had been looking for that information, and do, do you know if that's true that they that they slaughtered in, or is that just like accidents that happened a few well, we times? Ha- we haven't been able to to get to the chain of custody, but we know that uh, you know they just. I was just looking at the Modoc uh, horse, wild horse area. They just lowered the price to buy to buy those horses to one dollar. Oh wow! You can you can get a horse for a dollar out okay. there. And um, you can even go online and look at them in the corrals online and you don't even have to go. You can choose your horse and pay your dollar, have somebody ship them to you, you know, or, or something like that. But what we suspect is happening, there's not a lot of, of families that want to adopt horses, especially these days with the economy the way it is. In fact, it's just the opposite. A lot of people that have horses, individuals can't can't afford to maintain them anymore. And uh, so that's a big problem. So we suspect that a lot of these horses are being sold and are eventually going to, we know they're not being slaughtered here, but they may be being slaughtered. They're probably being slaughtered up in Canada. Okay. Uh, But nobody has been able to really tie that down. We need a, 
we need an investigative reporter, Josh, to go get the goods on you. <laughs> well, maybe sure. I'll make some make some more enemies while I'm at it. But uh, yeah, I I think that's a really important topic. Yeah, maybe somebody can they can insert a chip or something like that, and then yeah, could, uh, that that could be yeah. one way of doing it. But yeah, that's that's sort of what my investigation had uncovered it's we're suspecting this but it's been really hard to prove it because basically what happens is one person will buy it and then they'll sell it to the next person it's sort of like a like a, a sex slave ring you know where like you, you have enough mm -hmm. separation yeah. that it's really hard to trace that and do you think sure. that the u.s government really cares that much like i mean they, no, they, they don't they, you know they're no, they don't. I, I mean, you know, when you say the U.S. government, it's not a person, right? But the people right. in the agencies that manage these things, they've got a problem because they got too many horses out there. The natural predators aren't there. Uh, you know, if we had wolves everywhere, we might not have that problem. You know, right. they'd be taking enough of the foals. Yeah. But we don't have, have wolves out there. Very few places do we have wolves now. So the predators can't do it. So they've got a problem because they've got these these cattle guys out there that are constantly badgering them about the horses and particularly, so they've done management plans. Oh, this is how many horses we're going to have, but they got 10 times that many. Right. So nobody, there's nobody to um, adopt those horses or buy those horses. So now they are, some of those horses are getting rounded up and shipped uh, out to private lands where they're being maintained at great cost to the taxpayers on private lands. I see. Um, but, you know, the politics is such that, you know, the agencies are not going to uh, directly kill um, kill any horses because right. the horse people just raise too much hell. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, talk about passionate people. I, I work with some of the horse people and I have a girlfriend that's a horse person, you know, and yeah, you know, Horse people are passionate about their horses. They're not going to sit down if, uh, and, and they're not going to be quiet. If horses are getting killed out there by the federal yeah. government, they would really, uh, it would wreak all kinds of havoc. I believe it. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot so of when instead they're paying all this money, they're using all this money to just feed horses in these corrals on yeah. private land. Well, it's interesting that you bring up predators and maybe this can be a way that we sort of conclude the discussion, but the predator issue. So you're saying if there were more wolves out there, maybe it would limit the number of horses, which again, we, we decided is not as huge an issue as the cow, but the reason there aren't wolves out there is because of the ranchers largely. Yeah. So right. it kind of comes full circle here. So my experience with in Oregon was I was a part of uh, we were doing we were talking about a wolf reintroduction. It was actually just letting the wolves back in. And I know they were they've come back in, I believe, from Nevada or something like that. So we were testifying. Idaho. 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 Right. That's yeah. right. And so they, they've been coming back slowly. And we're actually dealing with that here in Colorado. We just passed a reintroduction, but they're also coming in from elsewhere. We, we found a couple who are, who are coming in and the when we were testifying there were ranchers who were testifying and the the hyperbole that they were using was i i did laugh out loud they were calling them the child molesters of the forest was one of the 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 <laughs> epithets they were saying that they we need to build if if these wolves are coming in we're going to have to build these 
10 foot tall fences around the playgrounds and, and have them six feet into the ground so they don't snatch kids. So the, a lot of fear stuff. Also, I think it comes, obviously once in a while, a wolf is going to eat a sheep. And, but you look at the numbers, it's not as much as you think dogs and weather kill far more livestock than any, all the wolves put together. And there are all sorts right. of programs to compensate these folks but they keep pushing back and it's the whole city versus rural divide thing that I think it really comes down to. But so do you think that, do you think that, um, do you agree with my premise that a lot of the reason, a lot of the biggest push behind uh, against wolf reintroduction or any sort of other predator stuff is, is coming from cattle industry folks? Oh yeah. There's no doubt about that. It's coming from them. It's also coming from, uh, you know, the sort of the Trump, the Trump people, what animates, you know, what I believe animates the, the Trump people is, and I, you know, I live around, uh, have lived around a lot of them is, is really uh, being, don't replace us, you know, like they said in Charlottesville, we don't want to be replaced by who, by people of color, by people that are a little darker, by what? So um, I think uh, some of the reaction, the rural reaction to the wolf is the same kind of reaction is the world's changing and, and our world is going away. We're losing, we're losing something. We're losing our way of life. Yeah. The way of life that killed every predator right. <laughs> on site, right. you know, so, but it's not working. I mean, we now have a wolf pack in Northern California. You know, and there's another one looks like it's going to establish. And I'm just waiting for the day they get to some of the allotments that I work on. And we're going to see how 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 they're going to be dealt with. Um, but um, but you referred to this, too, is the losses. There is a certain particularly when you put your your cattle out into a remote wilderness area, there's a certain amount of losses you're going to have out there. And coyotes are going to take a certain amount. Um, you know, some are going to, going to get lost and fall down in steep areas, get into trouble out there. Mm -hmm. um, dogs, like you say, this is more down in the valleys, but dogs are the biggest, uh, the biggest losses are due to dogs, really. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, that, are, that are pets, unquote. But when they get together with other dogs, they uh, revert to their, you know, to their instincts. So, you know, it's, it's livable. I mean, there are, there are now we have enough, uh, enough wolves in enough places out in the West that we know it's not going to be a catastrophe for these, for these guys. And there are techniques you can use there's a well-established set of techniques right. for managing your grazing animals, your cattle and your sheep out there. And if you visit regularly, if you use dogs, um, if you keep your, your cattle away from denning sites, the yeah. biologists for the agencies, they, they know they're monitoring the, the wolves out there. They know where the denning sites are and you keep your cattle away from those denning sites, but that all takes management. And like I said, most of this grazing is still unmanaged season-long grazing. And, it, and that's the problem, both in terms of predators. If you're out there managing your cattle, you're not going to have those kind of predator losses. Yeah, and that's a great point. And that's maybe a great way to end this. It's, it's not just about 
the economics, it's, it seems like there are these ideologies, right? And some folks are just unwilling to consider a different way, but maybe, maybe it seems as if people are realizing, listen, there, there is a different way we can do this and we can continue to have our industry. And if they don't, then they don't get to have their industry. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. like, I've seen these memes. It's like, well, we have to save the we have to save the horse and buggy industry. We, we can't allow cars to be built because we got to, you know, what about all the people's jobs in the horse and buggy industry? It's like, yeah, that's a bummer, but we do actually move along in society and there's a time for different things. And it's funny. Yeah. A lot of folks. So the MAGA thing is make America great again. So if you're talking about going back to the time where we shot every predator on site, well, make America great again. Let's go back even further when we didn't. And the wolves were in coexistence with the herds of elk and, that that to me is uh, what uh, making America great again could be like. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, where I want to end here is, you know, uh, what we haven't done in the environmental community is do enough education of our own community and the and the public about what the the significance of the impacts that all this grazing in the headwater areas. Uh, on these public lands is having. And so I think we need to emphasize these water quality and, and water supply impacts. The West is drying out. Water supply is becoming more important. And we have to educate people that these meadow systems at the heads of our streams are tremendously important to our supply, both stream flow in terms of fisheries, uh, base flow in our summers, our summers are dry. So we need these sponges to be releasing water during the summer into our streams through the, the springs in the mountains. And the grazing damages all that, damages it very significantly. And, uh, and so, you know, we need to do a lot better job and put a lot more energy, I think, into educating people. And that's, that's uh, why I, I like to do things like this. And I'm very grateful for people like you that are putting podcasts out there, putting information out there to educate people. Well, thank you so much for your work. And folks can find you, the Grazing Reform Project at grazingreform.org. Is that the best way for them to That's, find what you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Check out the website. Excellent. Well, thank you, Felice. Thank you. Have a good day.